Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Market Matters podcast from Emirates NBD. I'm Katija Huck, Chief Economist and Head of Research, and I'm joined today by my colleague Edward Bell, Senior Director of Market Economics. And we're going to talk about the Delta variant of the coronavirus and its impact on global growth. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot of high-frequency data confirming an outright contraction in the manufacturing sectors of many Southeast Asian economies. So this includes countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Thailand. Now, China's manufacturing sector has stabilized. It was largely flat in August, but the services sectors have contracted for the first time since April 2020, and this is for the the August reading. Um, So this is quite a different picture to what we've seen in the second quarter um, and also what we're seeing in other parts of the world. So before we move on to to Europe and the US and the UK, um, Ed, can you just talk us through what it was that put these Southeast Asian economies back into recession territory in August? Yeah, so I think after we saw quite a lot of success across many Asian economies during the initial phase of the pandemic, where they seemed to to deal with the public health issue quite quickly, we've had this higher level of caseloads and a real strain on public health systems um, during the middle part of this year, down to the more highly transmissible Delta variant. Now, I think a big part of the reason that that is having such a profound impact on um, economic growth in the near term is the fact that unlike many of the developed markets, uh, vaccination rates across a lot of emerging markets has still been quite low. So if you look at an economy like Indonesia, you only have about 14% of the entire population that's been totally vaccinated. Uh, Or India, where we had a very serious outbreak in the second quarter, the number is close to 12. So you're dealing with populations that do not have the kind of level of inoculation to be able to absorb um, the the new variant in, in a way that they could bounce off it. On top of that, you're also seeing a strategy adopted by China, which has had more success in rolling out its its vaccine strategy, but they have zero tolerance for the virus. So whenever they see new cases pop up, and we saw that particularly early in August um, at the start of the month in China, you've seen very severe restrictions on activity. So limiting mobility between cities, shutting down uh, retail activity and retail sites, really trying to limit public gatherings. So that all in all has had an impact in terms of uh, I think derailing the growth recovery story across a lot of these big Asian economies. On top of that, you still have this issue in the global economy and the manufacturing sector in particular, that you're you're grappling with a raw material and component shortage. So you get this kind of snowballing effect where a public health problem is limiting people going to a factory in say Indonesia or uh, the Philippines or Taiwan. And so that's now electrical components. I can't get to an economy that's maybe had a faster vaccine rollout. So there's less for consumers to buy or they're gonna have to do it at higher costs. Yeah, I think we're seeing those supply side issues being more problematic for economies like the Eurozone, like the US and the UK where overall their manufacturing sectors have actually held up really, really well, even though they've also seen significant rises in terms of rates of infection uh, for Delta. Um, But mainly the data that's coming back from the PMI surveys is certainly saying that actually the shortage of uh, inputs, the shortage of component parts and raw materials, the delays in shipping are now starting to weigh on how quickly Uh, those uh, factories can scale up and actually meet the demand that they're seeing. 
Um, is there then any impact of the Delta variant on the developed economies, uh, given that the manufacturing sector's held up really well? Have they just simply escaped uh, any impact? Well, I don't think they've escaped entirely, but there is obviously a benefit to the fact that many of the developed markets had an early start in terms of rolling out vaccine and their uh, vaccines, and they're getting those now to a kind of critical level. So if you look at the, the UK economy, for instance, more than 63% of the population has been entirely vaccinated. Uh, Germany and the United States are not far off those numbers either. Japan's a little bit of an outlier, given that it did have a slow start to the vaccination rollout, but it is starting to make grounds up now. And I, I would also hasten to say it's not just a developed market versus emerging market kind of issue, because you can look at what we've seen uh, in the last couple of weeks in both Australia and New Zealand, which had largely been attributed as kind of COVID success stories by essentially shutting their economies off from the rest of the world. But there too, a shortage of vaccines has meant that restrictions have had to now be reimposed. And they're basically as about stringent as they've been since the entirety of the pandemic. So the vaccines there have allowed economies to, I think, absorb the impact of the, the Delta variant without causing as much of a public health issue that we're seeing in some of the other economies. But it is still, <coughs> excuse me, contributing to somewhat of a slowdown, a, a sort of deceleration in activity. And there may be also a reflection in that in terms of consumer behavior, uh, in terms of people getting a little bit more anxious about going out, uh, socializing or going out to retail activities. Um, but, but as you said, the PMI numbers that we have been seeing, the sort of near-term indicators for many of the developed markets have been pretty decent and certainly look uh, a shade better than what we've seen in Asia, particularly in China. When we've seen Eurozone data out for August, we essentially holding flat in month on month from July to August, but still for the composite number, a very strong reading of 59. So really not slowing down all that much. And that's really pretty much consistent across all the major economies. Again, the UK reporting another very similar kind of level where you had the composite PMI just about 55 for both July and August. So that would indicate that while we're slowing down from the kind of initial pace of recovery and rebound from um, more stringent lockdown measures and restrictions earlier in the year, we're still growing pretty well in most of these economies. As you say, though, while those headline numbers do look very good, there are these significant issues around supply chain disruptions and a backlog of orders. In fact, in the Eurozone, we've had the backlog of orders reaching a 24-year high as just getting access to those components remains a real issue. Uh, when we sort of move across the Atlantic and, and look at the United States, the data there has become in a bit more mix, I'd say, in recent data prints. It highlights the kind of uh, capping off of the robust activity levels that we saw earlier. So even aside from the uh, really quite disappointing August jobs number, which we can go into, data like personal spending, retail sales, anything that involves you going out and being in a crowd, being around other people at a time when, yes, the U.S. has had good vaccination rates, but there's still sort of a lingering anxiety about the, the virus is going to make the, the recovery kind of run out a little bit of steam in the near term. Yeah, I think the fact that a lot of the support from unemployment benefits and, and such like that we've seen throughout the pandemic in the United States is also set to expire. Uh, and I think that's that's potentially putting the pause or putting the brakes on consumer spending, um, as is the fact that things just cost more. And in a lot of the survey data is showing 
that consumers are saying, well, they're going to hold off buying new cars, they're going to hold off buying appliances, they're going to hold off buying houses even, because prices have just gone up so much. And so their purchasing power is now a lot less. So we're, we're in a situation where, as you pointed out, um, jobs growth has slowed. Uh, in fact, when we look at the breakdown of the, the jobs number that came out on Friday, um, the headline figure was not too bad um, in a non-COVID scenario. It was around 235,000 jobs that were added. But when you compare it to June and July, where we had close to a million jobs being added each month, it does represent a significant slowdown in terms of the rate of hiring. Um, and in particular, as you mentioned, those um, sectors which are particularly exposed to COVID, so leisure and hospitality and retail, uh, were ones where we saw the biggest drag in terms of, of, of jobs. But what does this mean going forward then in terms of policy? So we've talked about inflation picking up across a number of sectors, whether you're looking at the cost of producing manufactured goods um, and, and even the cost of labor. So we saw in the, in the Friday jobs number that wage inflation in the United States has accelerated and is now around 4% year on year. Um, at, at the time, you know, when fewer people seem to be rushing out to, to find jobs in, in the relatively unskilled segments of the market. So you've got price pressures building from supply shortages, from shipping delays, from higher wage costs. And at the same time, you've got an apparent slowdown in economic activity. Now, in the olden days, that would have been called stagflation, right? And that was almost the worst of all outcomes. You've got slowing growth and higher inflation. Um, what do central banks like the US Federal Reserve, like the ECB do, given historically their aversion to high inflation? But at the same time, the Fed in particular has this dual mandate. They've got to get unemployment uh, as low as possible, uh, while at the same time keeping inflation around 2%. Um, we've had a slowdown in activity. We are seeing prices and price pressures rise. Where does that leave the Fed in terms of their policymaking uh, in September when they meet? Yeah, I, th I think it's worth bearing in mind that the, the Fed's not going to be looking at a single data point as a complete predictor of where the economy has been and where it's going to be going. And while, yes, we had a big miss in terms of the August non-farm payrolls number, um, as you said, coming in at around 235,000 week compared with where we were in the, the months prior, and also a big miss on what the market was expecting of more than 700,000 jobs. The fact is job growth is at least still positive, right? So let's not kid ourselves. That's, that's still a good indicator that while the recovery is slowing down, it is still underway. Other indicators that we see now from the, the US economy, like the ISM numbers for both the manufacturing and the services sector still remain quite strong. So even if there is a bit of a deceleration in hiring activity in the labor market, um, things are not nearly as bad as they were during the peak of the pandemic last year. So I think the Fed is going to be watching that kind of recovery, you know, you know, much more long-term kind of time series than trying to focus on just where does the August number compare with the two months prior to it. Now, to us, the the relatively weak number for August is going to make the, the Fed's task in trying to develop its tapering strategy much more complicated. And I think in order to get an announcement by the end of 2021, there's only two more re meetings left where they could really come up with that, either September in a couple of weeks or the, the one at the start of November. But with that relatively soft August number in hand, 
it does seem unlikely that September is really going to be in play where they would announce a strategy for how they're going to begin uh, to bring asset purchases to an end. So that's probably going to mean that November comes into play. Now, if we did get another beat of weak jobs numbers, which would be the September print coming after the, the August one, that could even put a risk there too. But we're also going to get two more inflationary prints um, during that time as well. So we could still see inflation coming in at more than 5% where it's been for the last year and year, where it's been for the last couple of months. So that could help uh, encourage the, the argument in the Fed that, yes, the, the labor recovery is in a slower phase, but it's still going forward. But we do have these inflationary pressures to contend with. Let's pull back on some of the extraordinary additional stimulatory measures like, like tapering or like asset purchases um, in order to get the, the economy back on a more normalized footing. I think the commentary that we've seen from Fed officials, certainly from um, Chair Powell at the Jackson Hole Summit or Symposium, was they're making a clear delineation between you know, tapering of asset purchase is an initial strategy to get the economy or the monetary policy on a more normalized path, but it doesn't necessarily lead to an immediate rate hike scenario thereafter. And I think the issue that the market needs to grapple with when you when you look at the inflationary pressures in the United States is if we say had a 25 basis point or 50 basis point hike in 2022, uh, which I would stress is not our core scenario, how does that deal with the issue of the fact that not enough semiconductors are being made in Taiwan? You know, that is not necessarily a U.S. oriented problem it, that can be solved through in um, higher interest rates. You know, if you had um, if you had higher interest rates, but you're still not getting the, the components manufactured, that means nothing's going to be flowing into the automobile supply chain. No more new auto or new cars are being made. So used car prices are still going to be quite elevated. So you kind of have uh, interest rates as the kind of wrong tool, I think, at this stage to deal with a lot of those inflationary pressures. Yeah, I think it's worth repeating what uh, was clear in the July uh, Fed minutes and also in Jerome Powell's Jackson Hole commentary was to separate the idea of tapering asset purchases, which is basically reducing the amount of extra money that's being pumped into the economy every single month by the Federal Reserve, and having a you know having that completely separate to any discussion about raising interest rates. So one analogy which one of the Fed speakers, I think it was Kaplan, used in one of his interviews was, you know, we need to take our foot off the brake or off the accelerator rather, but that's not the same as, as putting on the brakes. So tapering asset purchases is simply taking the foot off the accelerator. Um, but you know, any discussion of actually putting on the brakes would be completely separate. And I think the bar for that kind of decision will be much higher uh, than, than what may be necessary for tapering. And, and I would agree with you, if you look at where the US economy is now, relative to where it was in March and April last year, you know, it doesn't seem to need the same amount of monetary policy support uh, in the form of, of extra liquidity being injected into the system in the same way that, that, it, it, was, uh, that it was needed last year. So I, I think regardless of the slowing of the rate of growth, as you say, um, it does make sense to start to taper some of that extra uh, injection of liquidity that happens every month. So I think it's worth at this point, given that we've also had regional um, PMIs come out this morning. Um, so it's now Sunday, the 5th of September. Um, it's worth 
talking about what we're seeing in terms of the regional survey data relative to both the slowdown or the contraction in Asia and the slowdown in, uh, in the Western economies. I think for the region, the dynamics have been quite different in the sense that we didn't get the very, very sharp rebound in the PMI surveys um, on reopening in the UAE and Saudi Arabia in Q3 last year that we saw um, in, in the Asian economies when they first lifted restrictions in the second half of 2020 or, or in the US and, and the Eurozone. And part of the reason for that is consumers in this region didn't have the kind of direct fiscal support in the form of unemployment benefits or furlough schemes that allowed them to build up savings, which they could then rush out and start spending as soon as restrictions were lifted. So the dynamics in the region through the pandemic were quite different. And as a result, I think the recovery has been more gradual. But nevertheless, it is still very much in play. And what we've seen in the August data, I think, is actually quite encouraging. So even though the headline PMI readings were slightly lower for the UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, than they were in July, so I think the UAE came in at around 53.8 and Saudi Arabia just over 54, the underlying components suggest that domestic demand in the UAE is continuing to recover quite nicely. And the way that we can see that is two, two things. One is the employment component of the PMI is in expansion territory and has been in expansion territory for the last three months uh, in the UAE and even longer in, in Dubai. Um, and that suggests that Jobs are being added in the private sector, which obviously is going to support overall consumption spending and consumption recovery. But the second interesting component of the survey is that new order growth has been quite strong, even though export orders have actually declined uh, in the UAE. So the demand for new work is actually coming from within the UAE itself, rather than being driven by uh, exports to other parts of the world. And that, again, I think confirms um, that it's it's domestic consumption that's actually uh, the driving force, uh, at least it has been over the last couple of months. And I think going forward, we obviously have um, Expo 2020, which is about to start uh, next month. I think that will probably give a, a bit of a boost to spending in the fourth quarter. Um, and so I think overall, we do expect to see the rate of growth uh, for the non-oil sector to continue to improve into the end of uh, 2021 and, and into 2022 as well. So I think um, that's probably a good summary of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks in terms of both um, the regional and the global data. I guess the summary would be that the Delta variant is having a significant impact on global growth, on the rate of global growth, but it's varying by region depending on how quickly uh, vaccines have been rolled out and also on each government's approach to or tolerance for uh, coronavirus infections. So we seem to see a, a, a greater willingness to allow uh, infections to rise in countries like the United States and Europe and the UK without imposing onerous restrictions on movement. But that's only possible because those countries have a very high vaccination rate. And so the, the impact in terms of uh, public health outcomes is perhaps a bit more limited. Uh, in China and Australia and New Zealand, um, we've seen a much a smaller willingness to, to see any increase in coronavirus infection rates. 
and that has uh, consequently informed much stronger restrictions um, on activity, and that has weighed on, on economic growth uh, in those countries, and of course other parts of Southeast Asia where we haven't had the benefit and the protection of um, vaccines, we've seen contractions in manufacturing in particular um, over the last couple of months. So if we were to look forward, what would you say are the risks that policymakers uh, need to be cognizant of uh, over the next few months? Yeah, well, it might seem a bit cliche to, to say 18 months into this that everything is still contingent upon the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but unfortunately that remains the case. And I think what's uh, absolutely crucial in terms of economic public health policy is improving global vaccination rates. And those numbers are heading in the right direction. They're perhaps not heading as fast in some economies as everyone would like, but so long as they're moving forward, then that is going to be a positive outcome. Um, however long that might take. Now, in terms of the near term, I think the risks are for perhaps more to the downside than they are to the upside. But the data that we are seeing, yes, it's, it's very much reflecting a deceleration, a slowdown in a recovery. But so long as we don't see things moving materially backwards, even if it's more of a grind in terms of employment indicators, such as headline job growth, or bringing down unemployment rates, uh, or if we see activity in the private sector measured by PMIs or under, other indicators kind of bumping around at slower levels of growth, those are still going to be confirmation that the recovery is on track. And I think given some of the other variables that are in play in the market, the kind of extraordinary stimulatory measures that central banks globally took last year and held on to this year, it can be appropriate for some of that to be taken back at the margin. So these the additional stimulus may not need to be in the market as much if it's not contributing to a fundamental economic recovery anymore if it's just inflating asset prices and a financial recovery, um, maybe more of the focus can now shift even, even further to that kind of fiscal-led recovery. And let's see some announcements in the U.S. leading in that direction as well. So all in all, it's perhaps not as robust, not as, as strong um, an end of 2021 as we would have wanted it to see at the start of the year. But nevertheless, it doesn't look like we're going substantially backwards uh, among some of the big global markets. Thanks very much, Ed. It's been a, a really interesting discussion and I think it's gonna be an interesting next few months ahead um, as we see how policymakers respond to the data that comes out um, and adjust course accordingly. Thank you also to our listeners, to the podcast, um, and we look forward to talking to you again next time.